You are tuned in to the Jackson Hole Connection, sharing fascinating stories of people connected to Jackson Hole. I am truly grateful for each of you for tuning in today. And support for this podcast comes from Teton County Solid Waste and Recycling, bringing the Jackson Hole community residential and commercial food waste composting options. Call 307-733-7678 for more information. Reading helps me learn from other people and guides me with daily thoughts. And so today I'm going to share a little quote with you. If you don't see the book you want on the shelf, write it. That's from Beverly Cleary. And if you haven't read any of her books, like the Henry Huggins series or Ramona books, I highly recommend it. If you have kids, they're phenomenal to listen to on Audible, but even better to just sit down and read with kids. And you are listening to episode number 218. My guest today is Sherry Brownfield. Sherry's an entrepreneur, a mom, community volunteer, and an advocate for people in need. Sherry is one of the coolest people I've met around town, and I've always seen Sherry with a big old smile on her face, just excited about life. She has a fascinating personal story and family history, which she's going to share a little bit about. And I always enjoy hearing and being able to see and talk to Sherry when I see her around town. As a business owner, who works with people around the world in the art industry. Sherry doesn't just have a business. She gets to be around creations which bring her and other people great joy. And when you find joy in business, the effort doesn't seem like work. Sherry shares with us her history of being in the art industry and also what is the single most important trait in her industry and also how the art industry self-regulates themselves as well. Sherry, thank you for joining me here today at the Jackson Hole Connection. It's fabulous to be able to grab some of your time so you can share your story with myself and all of the intentive listeners. Thank you. Thank you for having me, Stefan. I'm really excited about it. Yeah, we're going to have fun today. We're definitely going to have fun. Awesome. Sherry, you have a really, really interesting background with you and your, your family. And so I'd love for you to start off by sharing your family's background, but also share with us how you landed here in Jackson Hole. It's not one that you hear from many people. My family's background and how they landed in North America is probably extremely different from how I landed in Jackson. Um, So my, my, my background, my mother is from New Zealand. My father was born in Yemen. Both families were Orthodox Jewish families. And my father and his family traveled for four years, walked for four years through the desert to reach Israel in order to have religious freedoms and be free of religious persecution. Very, very lengthy tale of that, which my grandmother and grandfather and all aunts and uncles have told me throughout my life. And it's quite fascinating. But I grew up in Canada. I grew up in Israel. I lived in both places, but always was in big cities until 20 years ago. It was actually 
now, I want to say exactly 20 years ago, because it was November of 2002, that I moved out here from California. Rather than following the skiing, I followed a boy who <laughs> brought me here and is the father of my incredible daughter. He and I are no longer together, but is also still in Jackson. And he was coming here to work on property the Four Lazy S, which was going to become Three Creek. And my initial intro to Jackson was I got to live on the 700 acres that became Three Creek before, for a few years before any dirt was moved. So I went from living in cities to living down a dirt road on 700 acres where there is no near neighbor. Smiths didn't even exist at this time. So south of town was not even all that robust as it is now. And I thought that I had done the craziest thing ever because my career had been in the arts, in contemporary, modern art, which at the time also didn't exist in Jackson. So I really actually was quite unsure about my approach and landing here, but I couldn't be happier that I was brought here and I can't imagine living anywhere else. Well, thank you. And when you moved here, you have shared with me before that you were working here on a visa. At that mm -hmm. time, you were not a citizen, but since then you have become a U.S. citizen. Is that correct? Yes. The government has approved me six years ago to be a citizen. It was quite an ordeal to get that citizenship. But when I did move here initially, yes, I went from running some wonderful multi-million dollar art galleries to receiving a work visa to work as a front desk staff at the brand new Teton Mountain Lodge in the village. And I worked a night shift. I worked at midnight. It was hmm. not what I wanted to be doing, but it mm -hmm. was what I was limited to be doing at the time. Mm -hmm. Now I'm free to do whatever I want, thankfully. And so you now are back in the world of art mm -hmm. and, and share with us what it is that you do, because I am so excited to learn about your past work in the world of art but even even now what you're doing. So let's start with what you're doing now. And then I'd love to learn about how that's progressed from the beginning of your career in art, because it's certainly something that I'm not aware of. Yeah, well, right now, I guess I call myself a private art advisor and appraiser. And what that basically means is that with the knowledge and experience that I have in the fine art world, I can help clients and advise clients on either their acquisitions or deaccessions, possibly museum loans, certainly appraising art, whether it's large collections, single items for donations, and basically anything that there is to do with what one can do in the arts, I can help a client with curating their home, suggesting lighting, hanging, framing, and so on. When I saw you a few weeks ago, you had mentioned that for you to attend, I think it was an auction, you have to be vetted. Somebody just can't show up and start doing what you do on behalf well, of someone. 
Well, auction is actually, you can, anyone can go and everyone's money is pretty equal at auction, but in the private art world, in the gallery world, that's where there's a lot of uh, what I say, what we say is vetting that's going on when you are in the upper echelons of, say, the artists that are producing today. There's a limited amount of supply and very, very large demand. And it's up to the galleries that represent these artists to ensure that their artist's work goes into they're stewards of the artworks. And so it is very important for them to ensure that these artworks go to the right collectors or the right collections. First, they prioritize museums, and then they prioritize clients who either don't resell or clients who have a collection that already represents some similarities to this particular artist and so on. So as an example, I think the one we were talking about the other week was There's an artist, her name is Simone Lee. She's one of the most well-known contemporary American female artists right now. She represented the United States in the Venice Biennale this year, which is like the Olympics of the art world, where countries select an artist to represent them. And her work's been impossible to get for many, many, many years. I have been on waiting lists for a very long time with some very major galleries. But, you know, she produces maybe 12 works a year and there's probably 400 people wanting an artwork. Mm. So you can't just walk in and say, how much is that I want to buy it? There is a list. They go through every name. And then it goes so far as to ask me, who are my clients? Who do they donate to? Where do they live? What else do they collect? What museums are they affiliated? And so on. And so in this process, you have to submit all of this. You have to already have a connection to the gallery. If you don't, you're already number 399 on the list. Mm. And and then they made a short list, told me I, my client was on the short list out of all these people. And I needed to provide some more information And then my client was selected, the only private collector to have been able to acquire a work by this artist because all of the other pieces she produced for the year went to museums. And there was one work that she released for one private collector. And I am very lucky to be the one to have been able to access that work and acquire it for my client. Wow. That's like giving the Babe Ruth baseball card. (laughs) Kind of, yeah. 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 Wow. Talk about a backstage pass. (laughs) Now, I'm sure there is an immense amount of time that you invest on behalf of your clients to get on the short list and then to, to be selected. Now, what type of process have you gone through to be a vetted, a known as a legitimate private art? representative in the art world. It's not as though you showed up, hey, I'm Sherry. I'm here. So yeah. let's let's get to it. I mean, what what has been your journey to be where you are now, Sherry? Well, gosh, I know that in this business, the most important thing is your reputation, much like other businesses. But in this one, that is really all that matters. There is a global blacklist out there that galleries and dealers have. If you wrong the gallery or the dealer, 
it is shared <laughs> among others and people don't want to work with you anymore. And luckily I'm not on that blacklist. I am, I've been in the business for 30 years. I started really in when I was 18. I started working in galleries. I was doing anything I could. I was dusting. I was crating. I was wrapping. I was holding artworks up in the air for clients to see while my arms were shaking and the clients would be like, it's okay, put it down. And the owner's like, no, she's fine. You know, I did all the grunt work. Mm -hmm. I also worked in some museums in Canada, co-op galleries, which are artist-run galleries. And then, of course, retail galleries, both primary and secondary market galleries. And so I've been in the business a very long time. I've always been very true to my clients and their needs feel the most successful when I can help them put together whatever it was they were dreaming of that they couldn't quite put into words. That's really what finding art for clients is about. Unless you know you want a particular Picasso from 1938 you know, or whatever it might be, you're otherwise really helping someone put together a story of themselves. And so I've done that with as much integrity and ethics that I can. And I travel all around the world and I speak to galleries and gallerists and dealers and artists and advisors and appraisers and, and I buy and I sell a lot. And those are the things that have, I guess, over time opened the door for me to be part of this world and at first, I actually thought I'd be quite hindered by being in Jackson and that I wouldn't be taken quite as seriously as, say, someone in New York or L.A. inquiring about works for client. But it turns out that Jackson was a very cool thing for some people. It's an area that is untapped for many other art dealers or gallerists. It is also this little bubble. People know that they can trust me with their inventory. It will be seen by me and my client and that's it. I'm not running around New York City showing it to everybody and so on. So I guess, I mean, the the real answer, like anything in any business is simply having built trust and a good reputation to get me here, but also combine that with the fact that my clients are so fantastic and have such incredible taste also that they put me in front of some fabulous galleries because they share the things they want and I go out finding that and I get to be in front of all these amazing art dealers. So it's a symbiotic relationship, I guess, between the clients and the gallerists at the end of the day. Mm -hmm. I like what you said, you know, that reputation that you have and it's how you, I mean, you're certainly protecting who your clients are and, and what they collect and their interests there, what they, they are interested in. And I mean, some people bring their ego into it. And so therefore they can't hold themselves back from having to go share some of this information that that is confidential and kudos to you. And I don't ever imagine you being on the blacklist, Sherry. <laughs> I'm not. One of my clients got on a blacklist once and that was scary for me because I was afraid of being associated with it. Ooh. I know, but I'm safe because same thing. I have close relationships with that major gallery that had done that and I'm safe. But I also sign NDAs. I, I have several in place 
including one where I, I got permission to talk about an appraisal project that I've worked on, but in very brief conversation. So that might be something we'll talk about. Well, I look forward to to hearing about it. So being in Jackson Hole, I, I like what you said. Hey, you thought it might be an encumbrance to being here, but it wasn't. Are there other people that, I mean, we have some beautiful art galleries and we have a f- remarkable nationally renowned museum. Is there competition for what your services are here in town? Are there other people that do what you do in other art galleries? Or is this quite unique and such a very small, small market? It's pretty unique. The The best way I can explain first the differences between what a gallery does perhaps and what I do mm-hmm. is that a gallery is there to represent artists. If If this is a primary gallery, meaning... Like the majority of the galleries in Jackson work directly with living artists who they are showcasing. That's a primary gallery. It comes directly from the studio, whereas a secondary market gallery might be reselling works. That would be artists that have passed or something that has come back up on the market. So the majority of our local galleries have a very important duty, and that is to represent their artists. They have created a vision and a program. And their job is to ensure that these artists' work are seen, understood, heard, and they support the careers of these individuals. On the other hand, what I do is I support the client in their endeavors for art. So if they come to me, I don't just have one particular program. I have any gallery anywhere in the world. Local clients might want a sense of place in their collections. So I very deliberately will often acquire works from our local galleries for these clients. I'll mix them in with other pieces, but I actually bring business to the galleries rather than compete for the business. So for example, I recently was talking to a local gallerist. I mentioned that a client of mine had seen some works there. They said, oh, yes, we've tried so hard to figure out in what way we could get these works into that client collection, but we couldn't quite figure out how. And while I am looking at the house and the collection in a very holistic manner, I can put those puzzle pieces together. Whereas the client wasn't able to see that one artist's work and figure out how it fit in. I was able to see, okay, this is how we make it fit in, and this is where we place it, and this is how the story flows. Mm. If that answers your question, I think. Yeah, it does. Is your daughter learning this trade? This, what's her take on what she sees you doing? She has no interest. You know, when she was really young, I think she was about five, she used to take interest in the arts, and she once made a drawing, which is probably my favorite drawing because... It was absolutely, you could tell it was an art dealer's child who made it because what she did was she drew on one piece of paper, a bunch of different items in her room. So there was a doll, there was a pencil, there was a lamp, all these little things. And she put prices next to them, like just little numbers, 328. And then her favorite snake toy that she had, it said NFS, not for sale right next to it. (laughs) So she did pick up on what I do for a living at a young age, but she has not taken to it. She thinks it's pretty cool. 
She mm-hmm. loves seeing the art. She did tell me recently that she probably, as a 16-year-old, she said, I probably won't have any parties at the house because we have too much art that would get damaged. So she recognizes the work that I do and the value of it, but she does not have any interest. Okay. Yeah. I wish she did. I read about your life-changing event Mm. and life-changing moment. And it sounded like you were in a different path before you saw the work of a particular painter. Yes. What was your original path? And describe the feeling and the moment and who that painter was in, in that moment. Well, it was my first year of college. I was starting a liberal arts degree with the thought of going into law and ethics. And as an elective, I took a drawing class. And in that drawing class, I I didn't think I was particularly great, but I really enjoyed it. And the teacher was complimentary and encouraged me to look more and more at art history books or modern art books. And one day I was flipping through the one art history book that I had at my house, and I came across the work of an artist. He's not all that well-known, but fairly, you know, paintings of his can sell at Sotheby's and Christie's for a million or so. His name was Antoni Tapias, a Barcelona artist, abstract expressionist. And he, the one piece I saw, it was called, I think it was White and Orange from 1967. And it was this work that he had created. It looked like it was made of cement that was gouged into with a very simple shape and a tiny bit of orange in it. And I looked at it and it was my first real introduction to something more abstract that wasn't just pretty colors, maybe that I might have been introduced to in my home life. And instead, this was raw. It was tactile. It was emotional. It felt like action. It felt like the artist's hand. And it shifted my thinking about art because the drawing class I was taking was figurative drawing. So we were working on drawing figures and I wanted to look at it differently, which I eventually did. My my model drawings in art school ended up being quite abstract, but that led me down more and more research of artists, the arts. The teacher saw my sort of transformation and interest and encouraged me to pursue the fine arts. And by the end of the semester, I changed my major I spent a semester building up a portfolio and applied to the fine art department the following year. Very nice. Yeah. So it's it's been with me a long time. I, I, I was a painter. My degree is in, I have Bachelor of Fine Arts in art history, a double major, art history and painting, and a minor in a very obscure philosopher named Bernard Lonergan. You have a minor in a very specific philosopher. Correct. Not just philosophy, but <laughs> studying that philosopher. Yes. He okay. had a philosophy about how one comes to understand any thought to a very interdisciplinary approach. It was a very small program, very few students, all of them from different fields, literature, fine art, anthropology, and so on. And the idea was learning, thinking through all these various interdisciplinary approaches and how we come to an understanding. So yes, I chose that as my minor for some reason. (laughs) You were inspired. 
I was. I was. I had never heard of the man before. The Bernard Lonergan, a Jesuit priest out of Montreal, which is where I was doing school. They had a minor. I found it very interesting and highly complimentary to what I was doing as my double major. So it worked. That's awesome. Yeah. Wow. You have so much information, so much knowledge <laughs> and insight. This is so much better than talking to somebody about like football, I guess. Don't ever try and talk to me about football. I have no idea what's what. I don't know any of the sports names, terms, or teams. I can tell you how a touchdown happens. and <laughs> I oh, can't. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I love it. I love it. Sherry, we're going to take a quick break to get a word from one of our sponsors, and then we're going to come back and learn more about your world of art and what's involved. Teton County Solid Waste and Recycling estimates that approximately 3,954 tons of food waste are disposed in the trash right here in Teton County every year. This makes food waste the next frontier material in the quest to achieve our county's goal to reduce waste and recycle more, which will help us aim for zero waste. For more information on Teton County Integrated Solid Waste and Recycling's Curb to Compost Commercial Food Waste Program, visit tetoncountywy.gov recycle and join today. Sherry, welcome back. We're learning about the art world and mm -hmm. how you help people procure their collections and appraisals. And you said that you had permission to talk on the high level of a recent acquisition or appraisal. Is was that correct? Yeah. Yeah, I thought it would be an interesting thing to mention because what it really shows us is how hard it is to value art. The object I was asked to appraise was an artwork that flew to space. And that's all I can really say. But what I can say is when one appraises an artwork that is also a historic piece, has other types of marketplaces that could influence it. So aside from just the art market, the space market, space-flown items market, artifacts market, all these other things have something to do with how to value this particular artwork. So I had to study not only the artist's market, but also what is the value when things are flown to space. There have been examples of wine bottles flown to space and then resold at a very different number or little pieces of fabric from the Wright brothers' first Kitty Hawk flight that have flown to space. And these things have land value and they also have space value. The bottle of wine was a $10,000 bottle of Petrus and it sold for a million dollars at public auction. Yeah. I think it was at Christie's, but I'm I should double check that it wasn't Sotheby's. I apologize. So yeah, so the interesting part about it is simply that value is not just a given. Value is certainly in the art world, it's what someone is willing to pay for something because we do rely on the, there's very little public information in the art world except for auction results. Everything else is very private. It's a $65 billion annual industry. And most of that is is done 
sort of in behind curtains. We don't know what something bought was bought for or sold for, except for when things are at auction and may have repeat sales, we can gauge the growth of that particular artist or genre. So obscure things like that could be an appraisal on my desk. It could be a massive collection. I did a very large collection of nearly 900 artworks last this last year. So yeah, appraisal projects can really challenge me and how I think about where and how one attaches value to an artwork. Taking an item into space, are there services that take items to space so then it comes back down and somebody can purposefully sell it? Well, I can't discuss pertaining to this particular artwork, but I can sure, say that, just... yes. For example, there is a company that sends small embroidered flag, like iron-ons for your jacket or whatever. They send them to space. You could probably buy those little iron-on patches for, you know, a buck or two, three on online anywhere. But then they fly them to space and come back and they're typically sold for anywhere between 200 and 300 or so, maybe up to $500 per patch. Mm. Okay. I know, it's weird. Elon, Elon Musk involved in another realm of, of things, maybe. Maybe I can't, I can't yes. say who. I can't I, say who. I totally get it. I totally get it. And I respect that. And I'm not going to, I'm not asking. So I, I do get the part about in the end, it's the value of something is only, you know, in the end, what somebody's going to pay for it. Another mm-hmm. person's going to pay for it. Mm-hmm. How much emotion is involved with that valuing of, or I guess when somebody buys it? Do you mean the new buyer? Yeah, because... And and how that might affect the price they may pay? Yeah. Yeah, and, and that's why I was saying it's really about what it's worth to someone because you may have an auction happen one night and only one guy or girl is in love with this painting and so there isn't a major bidding frenzy and they walk away with it for maybe a low price as compared to what it might have been if there was another person bidding very fiercely against them. And it all comes down to who's in the room, who's on the phone, is how it will affect the price. So say there's a painting someone wants to buy because it reminds them of their grandmother. Well, that emotion will tie into it. And if they have the means to go to be the higher highest bidder, then they will. Mm-hmm. Now, then we have to consider, is that an outlier when we look at studying the value? If I was studying that particular artist's value, is that an outlier in the overall marketplace? Was there maybe a passionate bidder that night? Or perhaps was it such a terrible night? Was it a night that the economy crashed? We have to look at all these factors, not simply the artist's market, but also what's happening in politics, what's happening in the financial markets, what's happening geographically, is the sale happening in Hong Kong or in New York, and so on. So the emotion of the buyer, the time, the place, there are so many factors that can change. So that's why we have to look at many years worth of data to try and find some sort of norm if there is one. Mm -hmm. And then we have to remove those outliers when possible. Okay. And being a person who is reputable, and you have that 
going for you. I'm sure you're going to reputable sources as well. How do you all ensure that what is being transacted brought to you are legitimate pieces or aren't pieces such as being stolen or sold on the black market for terrorist activity or you know something Ill illicit? Yeah, that's a good question. The U.S. is still figuring out how to deal with this. In Europe, they have started new programs. KYC, know your client. If I want to buy something in Europe, for example, in order to prove that we're not laundering money, I have to supply the passport copies of my clients, their social information and so on, banking information for them to be researched, to know that I am not helping someone launder money. The U.S. doesn't have rules like that at this point. There has been conversation on how to do that. So that's when we, the quote, reputable bunch has to rely on one another to ask questions. We try to deal with the people that we know. I should say I try to deal with the people that I know to be very reputable. If a work of art was created before the Second World War, and it's an important piece, possibly by an artist that may have been stolen property from Jewish families, then there is a registry called the National Arts Loss Registry that you can check and all paintings that have been marked as stolen would be listed in there. For authenticity, we use a lot of studying, whether it is sending information to the authenticating body for that particular artist, which sadly, there aren't very many anymore. They have mostly disbanded due to litigation being too expensive for the estates to carry out their mission of authenticating artworks. But we just have to rely on everything from catalog resumes, which are books about everything by the artist, to the people we work with, to museums we may ask questions to, and databases that we look to as well. Mm -hmm. And when a new client comes to you, is there, you work with a network of people to vet that client? How How's the process to ensure that this new client coming to you is legitimate? Well, for the most part, my business is based on referrals. Uh -huh. So most of the relationships that I have have been very longstanding and the people referred to me are sort of in that known category of these are good people. Mm. I've had a client or two who I haven't known much about in the past, perhaps because in today's day and age, we work online a lot. A contact may communicate with me online, see that I have sold perhaps a piece by a certain artist and he'd like to know if there are other works available by this artist. And I have to you know, make Google my friend, ask a lot of questions. But for the most part, I could say I've been very lucky. I have been in a situation or two in the past where there became less lucky <laughs> scenarios, including theft and someone who has been to jail that I had for many, many years known and trusted. And many people in the art world had trusted and known who went awry. So we just have to stay on our toes, do as much as we can to stay on top of 
the people we work with and their network, I guess. And I think that's the same in almost any market, especially financial, real estate. You know, when you're working one-on-one as a private advisor in many ways, we just have to kind of rely on our network and asking questions. Well, what a remarkable industry to be able to have that resource of just other clients recommending you. I mean, you still, the vetting process, I'm sure, is important just as they want to know that you're legitimate. Yeah. You're going to want to know that they're legitimate. Yeah. I generally, I've been really lucky. I have clients who have become close friends who I simply adore. And I I think the process of bringing art into their lives is such an exciting thing. And it's something that I don't know, maybe even more so than other elements when someone moves into a home and maybe is designing it. When it comes to picking the art on the walls, they start to get much more personal than, say, maybe their choices in fabrics or lamps or rugs. And they start talking about how this makes me feel, Mm. how that painting, what it evokes or reminds me of. And so I, I end up getting to know people very well through the work that we do. And I don't know, I, I lucked out, I guess. They're all amazing mm-hmm. clients. They're all wonderful people. I'm very happy for you to have that connection with your clients because not everybody does. That's um, very true. Yeah. Can we roll back just a little bit? So you were working with a very special segment of people who are collecting art and the resources. So let's roll back just a little bit, or maybe a lot for some people. And if somebody's thinking or wants to begin their own collection of art, but not at the level that your expertise would require, what do you share with people as far as what they should be looking for, the process that they should go through as far as making a decision, and what is the the flow and the feel that they should think about when they're making those decisions? Well, first, I will say that although I specialize in finding some rare objects, I also work with new emerging collectors as well as people who don't even consider themselves collectors, but want to surround themselves with beautiful objects. Mm. So first, I want to say that not everything that I am helping clients acquire are crazy expensive or names that are household names. So I do help people with exactly what you're talking about. Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah. And the, the reason why I think it's helpful at any level, whether your budget is huge or on a smaller scale, it is still what you are living with every day that is supposed to be inspiring you. It's not on the walls just to take up space, hopefully. It's not there, hopefully, just to match a sofa. And even if it does match the sofa, it can match the sofa and still speak to you. So the first determination that I'll often ask a new client that I'm working with is is to really understand why they're looking to buy art. Because some people want to fill their lives with beauty and other people actually want to invest, for example, find emerging talent or mid-career talent or distressed opportunities and buy art that will appreciate. 
Some clients are strictly building an art portfolio that is diversifying their financial investment portfolio. So I first want to say that there are so many different reasons one might choose to come to me to acquire art. In the case that you're painting, someone who maybe is looking for some works for their home, whether it's a new home or something that, you know, a wall that's just been bugging them. I like to go through the process of talking about some simple words of what emotions or feelings they want to have in their home so that we can try and capture that first and foremost. Sometimes they don't know the answer to that or often, more often than not, the wife and husband will have different opinions on that. And I do often laugh that Part of my job is also marriage therapy in some ways, because it's interesting how passionate some people are and their partner is not about the same artwork. But you hear it from everyone, buy what you love. That is absolutely tried and true advice that I think should always stick around. And then once we figure out what you love, whether it's a style or a genre? Do you like figurative work? Do you like pure abstraction? Do you like pointillist work? And so forth. You know, then we look at what else is in the space? Is there a storyline that we can connect? Are there other artworks that already exist or are we connecting the whole storyline? Do we like texture? Do we want to see process-based art? Do we want to see the hand of the artist? Do we want to see a local scene on the wall? So we have to really look through so many elements distill. And then I still could probably suggest a thousand works from what we've distilled it to. But of course, that would not help my clients. And I try to limit and suggest a handful of things at first, 10 things at first, and whittle that down. And I very specifically ask clients to tell me not just what they like, but even more importantly, what do they dislike and why? Because mm. that can really help guide me even more than, oh, I like this color or this flow. Hopefully that answers a little bit of that question, but it's actually a, it's actually pretty simple. We find out what you like and I go out and find it. And mm -hmm. the steps in between are complicated, but the overarching theme is simple. Hmm. That's great to know that it's doesn't have to be, if you're looking for a Picasso or a Monet or those no. are the names I know, but you know. Yeah, those are the names most people know. And of course, uh -huh. if you're looking for those things, I can help. But also, if you're just looking for one thing for the powder room, but you want it something special, mm -hmm. I'll, I'll be able to hopefully advise. And in a small town like this, where we have access to some great art, but perhaps those artists are already in these clients' collections and they want to maybe go elsewhere. But they can't travel all over the world to look and they can't go to every gallery to look. Whereas every day I have perhaps 100 or so emails from galleries around the world showcasing whatever it is they're talking about this month or this week, I should say. And I get to see what is out there, what is being shown, what are the themes, what are the trends, what are the price points and so on. And I'm able to classify, categorize all those things and then I try to keep a little database of all of this for myself, my own knowledge to then tap back into when new projects come my way. Hmm. I've learned so much today about <laughs> your world, your industry that I had no idea about before. 
It doesn't surprise me. It's a very secretive and veiled industry, to be quite honest. Unfortunately, when there's a lot of secrets and and opacity, there's also fraud that exists, sadly. Mm. And you can read about those things in the art news also most weeks or most days. There's a newsletter either in the art newspaper or Artnet or whichever other art news industry I read. And with one other stolen artwork or someone else found to have been selling fake Picasso lithographs or whatever it might be. So there's a bit of everything. We hope that we are surrounding ourselves with the people that we can trust all the time and doing our due diligence, which is where I come in. Mm. I'm very grateful and thankful that there are people with your ethos in this and in all industries. There, yeah. there are, unfortunately, it's the bad people that that get the limelight of it all. That's exactly um, it. Yeah. And, I hate yeah. to have highlighted it. I probably shouldn't have, but no, no. it's there. <laughs> it is. Yeah. And, it's, and who knew? A blacklist. Wow. Just think in business, if you could have a blacklist and say, Mm-mm. yeah, well, it I bet you really hard. I don't know, Stefan. You might have like pictures of people in the back of the liquor store saying, don't sell to this person. <laughs> we we do have pictures of some people like, don't let yeah. this person back into the store. There's a blacklist that exists yeah. in many industries, perhaps. <laughs> yes. And in a small town like this. Yeah. Well, and the art world is small. We are very interconnected. There are very few degrees of separation between most of the art dealers out there. You could... Usually, I was in Colombia a few weeks ago to go to an art fair in Bogota and met a few folks. And sure enough, there were links between us. One was an Italian woman. And sure enough, we knew a dealer in common that she was going to present some pieces that I was telling her about. So it is a very small art world as well. Mm. That's that's wild. Yeah. But it just shows that the world, even though it seems so massive, and there's so much happening in the world. If you take enough time and find the calmness in it, in all the noise, there is some connection there. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. People may not know this about me. <laughs> I'm a real introvert, in fact, I, although I play an extrovert on TV. In my world, I have to play an extrovert, but really I'm an introvert. And finding that calm, sitting with myself and my information and what I'm looking into, what I'm researching is really where I think I thrive. Mm, That's cool. Mm -hmm. Thank you for sharing that. That's very personal. Yeah. Well, you know, this way people can expect me to be less outgoing maybe at the next event. (laughs) (laughs) Sherry, if people want to reach out and connect with you, what is the best way they can, they can do that? Well, I now have an office downtown. I opened up my space, Sherry Brownfield Fine Art, which is in the Little Log Cabin on Glenwood Street next door to Trio. Mm -hmm. It's been iterations of the Elk Antler store guy with the video store back in the 80s out here. It's been a knife shop, a sunglasses shop, and so on. It is now an art advisory office. So I have that office. I don't keep regular hours, so I do suggest appointments. I can be reached via email, my phone, et cetera, and everything can be found on my website, which is sherrybrownfield.com. That's awesome. Yeah. I so appreciate you bringing the art world to us today. Because, like I said, it's something that I was not aware of. And it's fascinating to learn. And kudos to you 
for finding what brings you such great joy and knowing that that's what you are going to go after in life. Thank you. You know, it wasn't the easiest path. Of course not. (laughs) Not that anyone's is, but it was certainly difficult when I moved here and my life really had to, my art career was put on hold. Interestingly enough, I segued into a children's clothing line at one point. That was my creative outlet. But I found myself back here. I At one point when the clothing line I had created while being a stay-at-home mom got big enough that I was employing full-time seamstresses and Zoo Lily had come, did an event with me and I had wholesalers in New York and LA. And, and I thought to myself, gosh, I'm growing this business, but I should be in the arts. And I closed it all down hmm. at that point and came back into the arts. And that was in after taking a step away after my daughter was born in 2006. And I got back in around 2010. And I couldn't be more thrilled with the last 12 years. Good for you for and congratulations to you for taking that leap of faith and, and realizing that you didn't get caught caught up in that great success of that clothing line. And you were able to say, there's something else. I want to go back to the art. I want to yeah. go back to art. Yeah, I knew I had to. I knew that was where I was happy. I knew that it's what I studied to do. The fact that I can have a career in my specialty is really quite outstanding, especially it being art. A fine art. I was very lucky. My parents were very supportive of my education and my getting a degree in fine art, but not so many are because it's hard to get work in the fine art world. And mm-hmm. so I am extremely grateful that I get to do what I love in Jackson Hole, like the most outstanding place in the world. So I'm thrilled. Well, I'm thrilled that you're here and you're part of this community and raising Finley here and now a, an adult. Oh my goodness, she's a 16-year-old. <laughs> and, you know, I want to say also, just as a note, something that was really important for me in what I do because I work for myself is becoming involved in this community. And this is something that Jackson offers that other cities may not as easily offer. And that is the involvement in the nonprofit world here. And I've been really, really fortunate and grateful to be sitting on art boards in this community and being involved with the community that appreciates art and themselves with it and spends time with it. So I just feel like in all aspects of my life, from my work life to my nonprofit world, the arts are such a major part of it. And it feels very holistic in my life and it feels very complete. Rock on. Yeah. That's that's beautiful. (laughs) Well, Sherry, thank you so much for your time today. And what you've contributed to us all. Thank you. You're welcome. To learn more about Sherry Brownfield and her services and art gallery, visit the jacksonholeconnection.com episode number 218. Thank you, everybody who helps keep this podcast on the air. Keep sharing it. Send us feedback on Facebook and the Instagram. We appreciate you folks. And cheers till next week when I see you right back here for another episode of the Jackson Hole Connection.